You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is the eighth and final lecture in a series of lectures on the logic of religion. I've entitled this lecture, Edith Stein, The Convert in Search of Illumination. I am Jude Doherty, Dean of the School of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. In this series, we've been looking at religion as viewed from a pre-Christian perspective as we find religion treated in such giants as Plato and Aristotle in Cicero and Seneca. We've looked at religion after the advent of Christ in some of the early fathers of the church and we've looked at religion as viewed by St. Thomas Aquinas and then the reformers, Luther and Calvin, and then some modern interpretations of religion, those provided by Hume and Kant. I would hate to say, and I do not say, that I have done justice to any of the authors that we have considered. Perhaps what we have said within these lectures will lead you to the primary sources, most of them are readily available. The philosophy of religion, which is the perspective I have employed, is a relatively new discipline. It's to be distinguished from natural theology, which looks into arguments for the existence of God. Religion, whatever one thinks about it, is a sociological artifact and can be examined from a number of viewpoints, certainly from philosophy, but also from sociology, from history, from psychology. We have done more than just look at it as a artifact created by human beings. We've looked at the inner workings, what it presupposes. We have seen something of its structure. We've seen something of the implications of a religious outlook. Now I want to look at the workings of a mind, a philosophical mind, the workings of the mind of Edith Stein as she embraces Christianity. In the context of how one can gain the faith, I want to say and contrast her gaining of the faith with the loss of faith on the part of another philosopher. My story begins with a stay that I was fortunate to have in the city of Salamanca, Spain, some time ago. Salamanca is the seat of a university whose charter dates to 1215. One of its most distinguished 20th century rectors was Miguel de Unamuno, known the world over as a philosopher poet, dramatist, novelist, and essayist. In Salamanca, I had the time to read Unamuno and to study his life. He was born in 1864 in the Basque coastal city of Bilbao. Unamuno, as a young man, aged 16, left his native city for Madrid. One of his biographers notes that shortly after he arrived in Madrid, this formerly pious youth stopped going to Mass. What he took up is not fully disclosed, but he began reading German philosophy, Schopenhauer, Kant, Hegel. He learned English in order to read Herbert Spencer, the prophet of evolutionary process who was the intellectual fad in those years. The upshot of his studies, these are philosophical studies, was that he lost his faith 
I've said before that philosophy can either open one to the faith or close it down as an intellectual option. Unamono eventually married his childhood sweetheart. The couple had eight children, and when he was in his early 30s, they lost their third child. The experience was shattering, emotionally, intellectually shattering. It brought Unamuno to his knees and to a life of contemplation and prayer, although he never returned to the practice of his faith. Though Unamuno was culturally and emotionally a Mediterranean Catholic, he never developed a Catholic mind to go along with it. Years later, as an influential academic and politician, he trusted neither the Catholics nor the secular-minded. His literary legacy remains ambiguous, a kind of reverent humanism without adequate foundation. Unamuno was 15 years of age when Leo XIII promulgated his famous encyclical, Eterni Patris, a document which recommended to the Catholic world the study of St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas was recommended both as a philosopher and as a theologian. Leo XIII was aware that the critical philosophy, we examined some of it in Hume and Kant, of the continent, not to mention the empiricism of Scotland and England and the various materialisms which commanded allegiance of intellectuals throughout the West, provided no foundation for the Catholic faith. To one of the Catholic faith, belief makes sense not only for the understanding it provides, but because it forms a continuum adding to what one knows to be the case from experience and reason. Leo XIII recognized that some philosophies open one to the faith, just as some close one to the faith. Immanuel Kant, for example, may be the perfect philosopher for some forms of Protestantism, but he can never become an adequate guide for the Catholic mind. With his dictum, I have destroyed metaphysics in order to make room for faith, Kant reflects the tradition of Luther and Calvin, whose doctrine of original sin held that as a result of the fall, the intellect was so darkened that it cannot, unaided, conclude to the existence of God. Faith for Luther and Calvin is a leap in the dark. Kant said, in effect, given the limited ability of the human mind, it must always be that way. By contrast, the Catholic tradition insists on the reasonableness of belief. Revelation adds to the store of natural knowledge, completing natural knowledge as grace perfects nature. The Catholic mind is woven out of strands provided by Jerusalem, Athens, Rome, and medieval Paris. Picture now a young woman schooled in the German philosophy of the period, newly a student of Husserl, discovering Catholicism. Edith Stein was born 12 years after Leo XIII urged the study of St. Thomas. She was eventually to experience the fruit of what we've come to call the Thomistic revival. Edith's path to St. Thomas was complex. It began with philosophical study, which eventually led, through her acquaintance with Max Schiller, to an appreciation of Catholicism. That's the same Max Schiller on whom Karl Wojtyla, now John Paul II, wrote to earn his doctorate degree in philosophy. Reared in a conservative Jewish home, Edith Stein, not unlike Unamuno, abandoned her faith as an adolescent. Between the age of 13 and 21, she considered herself to be an atheist. Intellectually precocious from childhood, as a university student, she found herself dissatisfied with the dominant German philosophy of her time, the same philosophy which separated Unamuno from his religious heritage. By accident, she discovered the two volumes of Husserl's Logical Investigations. The Logical Investigations of Husserl is made up of six investigations preceded by a prolegomena 
published as Volume 1. The prolegomena, or a sustained critique of psychologism, the doctrine that reduces logical entities, such as propositions, universals, and numbers to mental states or to mental activities. Husserl insists on the objectivity of such targets of consciousness and shows the incoherence of trying to reduce them to activities of the mind. The rest of the work examines signs and words, abstraction, parts and holes, logical grammar, the notion of presentation, and truth and evidence. Husserl's distinction between intuitive presentation and symbolic intention enables him to discuss in a realist manner not only perceptual objects, but categorical objects such as states of affairs, relationships, causal connections, and the like. Husserl maintains that we can have an intellectual grasp of such things by means of an intuition. An intuition occurs when we articulate an object as having certain features or relationships. The formal structure of a categorical object is reflected in the grammar we use to say something about it. Husserl's realism, now this is not uh, realism in a technical sense as opposed to idealism. Husserl's realism came as an antidote to both Kant and Hegel, affirming the existence of objective truth and the existence of a knowable world apart from the mind. Husserl himself, partially trained in Vienna, was indebted to two Austrians, Franz Brentano and Bernard Balzano, both trained as priests, both steeped in the scholastic philosophy of the Thomistic revival. Thus, at age 21, Edith left Breslau for Göttingen, where she hoped to study with Husserl, whom she had already come to regard as the philosopher of our time. It is in Göttingen that she met Max Scheler, a Jew who was an on-again, off-again Catholic. Scheler opened her eyes to the fact that one could be a philosopher of rank and still a believing Christian. It will be 10 years before Edith enters the church, but under Shaler's influence, she discovered what she called the phenomenon of Catholicism. Husserl taught Edith her phenomenology as a method. She used the method to look closely at the world and to herself, but always in a very detached way. Long before her baptism, she began the study of St. Thomas. Later on, on the advice of the Jesuit philosopher-theologian, Eric Chavara, she began the translation of St. Thomas's disputed questions on truth. It was that translation which brought her into intimate contact with the mind of St. Thomas. But to say that she admired St. Thomas's style, that scholastic style, would be to leave a false impression. The scholastic practice of stating a thesis listing the objections to that thesis, defending the thesis, and then answering the objections to the thesis, in her judgment, would discourage the modern reader. Thus, she dispensed with the objections and their answers and got to the meat of Thomas's own systematic thought. To each question, she appended an analysis showing the contemporary bearing of the discussion with particular emphasis on the metaphysical and epistemological issues involved. She was writing for a literate audience, not for scholars. Martin Grobman provided an introduction to her volume. And Father Shavara was to say of it, it is St. Thomas and nothing but St. Thomas throughout. But Thomas is brought face to face with Husserl, Scheler, and Heidegger. The translation gained for her a reputation as a student of St. Thomas, and she was invited to lecture on his thought. But it wasn't Thomas alone who prepared her for her reception into the Catholic faith. Husserl and Thomas both opened the way. Husserl's realism opened her to theism, and from Thomas she acquired 
a Christian perspective. But it was Teresa of Avila who led her to the final step. Visiting the home of her friend, a professional philosopher, Helvig Conrad Martius, in the summer of 1921, she read the life of St. Teresa of Avila, an autobiography. Upon finishing the work, in the early hours of the morning, she put the book down, proclaiming to herself, this is the truth. Thomas's De Veritate was about truth in the abstract. Teresa had given her truth concretely. And that same morning, she set out to buy a catechism and a missal. Fra Conrad Martius relates that she had the impression that Edith attended Mass daily from the night of her encounter with St. Teresa. Edith studied both the catechism and the missal, and then one morning after Mass, she followed the priest into the sacristy and asked to be baptized. Surprised at the abruptness of her request, he informed her that she would have to take instructions. And her response was, quiz me, which he did. Needless to say, she had prepared herself well. She was received into the Catholic Church on January the 1st, 1922. As one of her biographers puts it in a, a little work, Edith found her source in the intellect and came home to her creator. The love dwelling in her soul responded to the searchings of her mind. Now that's a theme we've heard time and again in our investigations. Without Husserl and Thomas, Edith may not have been positioned to appreciate Teresa. Clearly in her case, faith came as a gift perfecting nature. Husserl once said, the life of man is only a progression toward God. I have tried to reach this progression, Husserl says, without theological proofs, methods, or aids. In other words, I've tried to reach God without God's help. Husserl added, I have tried in one way or another to delete God from my scientific thought so that I might outline a way to him for those who lack the security of faith in the church that we know. Husserl is also reported to say that on his death he ought to be canonized since he has led so many people to the acceptance of Christianity. His philosophy, he thought, converges towards Thomism and prolongs Thomism. From the earliest days following her baptism, Edith desired the cloistered and the contemplative life for which Teresa provided the model. But her spiritual mentors advised her to stay in the world where she would most likely have influence for the good on others. She taught for eight years at the secondary level at St. Magdalene's, the Dominican nuns training school at Spire, and eventually sought a university post, having completed her habilitation shrift in English, potency and act. The European system is to prepare oneself really for a university post. One writes really two doctoral dissertations. Failing to secure a position at Freiburg, she accepted an appointment at Munster in the Institute for Educational Theory, an appointment which she held for less than a year owing to the Nazi ascendancy and their exclusion of Jews from university positions. Though through her teaching career at Speer and Munster, it was brief, she gained respect by pupils at both the secondary and the teacher's college level. In her classroom, she is said to have personified that virtue which she regarded as paramount for the Catholic teacher. Speaking of a Catholic teacher, she had written, the most important thing is that teachers should really have Christ's spirit in themselves and really embody that spirit in their personal lives. Although Husserl failed to support her for a chair at Freiburg, he used to call her his best pupil. 
After her entry into the Cologne Carmel, he said, I do not believe that the church has any neo-scholastic of Edith Stein's quality. Every true scholastic will become a mystic, and every true mystic a scholastic. This is quoting now Husserl. It is remarkable, he says. Edith stands on the summit, so to speak, and sees the furtherest and broadest horizons with amazing clarity and detachment. And yet there is another side, for at the same time she sees into herself with equal penetration. Everything in her is utterly genuine. Otherwise, I should say that this step, that is, into the cloister, was sheer romanticism. But deep down, Husserl says, in Jews is a kind of radicalism, the love of faith, even unto martyrdom, end quote Husserl. Through her writing, she gained a reputation which led to invitations to lecture from Vienna to Paris. Known as a Catholic feminist, she lectured on behalf of the League of Catholic Women and on behalf of the Association of Catholic Women Teachers, principally on women's roles, on professional responsibility, on responsibility to co-workers in the church, on homemakers, on teachers, and mothers. She was distressed by the increasing destruction of family life and the glorification of sex. As Hilda Graf remarks, she saw that the Catholic teaching on marriage as an indissoluble union was the only solid bulwark against the destructive tendencies of modern thought and education. But she thought in her introduction to her selection of writings of Edith Stein published in 1956 that such teaching had to be explicated in language cognizant to the contemporary context. Hilda Graf continues, quoting her now, she also demanded a more thorough training for women in their political and civic duties, since she knew that part of the success of National Socialism was due to the emotional attraction which Hitler and his methods had for women who constituted an appreciable part of the electorate that had voted for him. Stein was clearly what we would call a popular lecture on women's issues, but she never ceased to move in impressive philosophical circles. Perhaps her closest friends in the philosophical community were Hedwig Conrad Martius, Alexander Corre, and Max Scheler. Scheler, of course, had the most influence on her, and she might have had the amoral Scheler in mind when she wrote, there is a lot of difference between being selected as an instrument and being in a state of grace. Between 1922 and 1929, she published a series of essays in Husserl's Jahrbuch on topics such as the structure of the human person, the union of soul and body, the nature of community, the nature of the state, and the relation of the individual to the state, in 1929, for a festschrift honoring Husserl on his 70th birthday, she produced a comparative study of the philosophy of St. Thomas and Husserl's phenomenology, showing that on many issues there is a remarkable agreement between Husserl and St. Thomas. For both, philosophy is an exact science. Neither doubts the power of reason, and both look upon philosophy as a conscious effort to appropriate and transmit to others what is called the Philosophia Perennis. Stein observes that while Husserl never contests the validity of the act of faith, he does not recognize the duty of reason to faith or the superiority of knowledge derived from faith to that provided by reason. A Christian philosophy, she wrote, will consider its principal task to prepare the way for faith. The most serious difference between Husserl and Thomas, she thought, arises from Husserl's starting point. He begins with the epistemological question, putting the real world into brackets 
until he has completed his critique of knowledge. Stein thinks that with his doctrine of transcendentally purified consciousness, Husserl establishes a sphere of complete immanence wherein knowledge and its object are absolutely one. He thereby excludes all doubt. Husserl, in effect, asked, how is a world which I can imminently investigate it constructed for consciousness? From the pure data of consciousness, the subject constitutes the intentional world through its own intellectual activity. This is quite the reverse of Thomas. For Thomas, metaphysics is prior to any theory of knowledge. It is the normative science to which logic, epistemology, and ethics are subordinated. We'll return to Edith Stein's appraisal of Husserl, that is, her comparing Husserl and Aquinas. She remains a disciple of both throughout her life, neither repudiating Husserl entirely, though she does embrace Thomas completely. For Thomas, metaphysics is prior to any theory of knowledge. It is the normative science to which logic, epistemology, and ethics are subordinate. Although Husserl's transcendental phenomenology treats this subject, the knowing subject, as the starting point of philosophy and considers epistemology to be the basic science, Husserl and Aquinas agree on three important issues. All knowledge begins with sense perception, number one. Number two, human knowledge is characterized by an intellectual elaboration of sense data, which is the work of the intellect composing and dividing, and three, both admit the active and passive character of intellection and deny that thought is simply the product of intellect. This is Edith Stein pointing out basic similarities between her mentor, Husserl, and then her adopted mentor, St. Thomas. On a 1931 trip to Vienna, Edith stayed with Rudolf Allers. As a matter of fact, Allers was later to become a member of the faculty of which I am now dean. He translated her article on Dionysius the Areopagite for Marvin Farber, who was then editing the Journal of Philosophy and Phenomenological Research in the United States. Allers submitted it after having translated it. Farber thought it was too theological, perhaps too Catholic for his journal. Allers then published it in volume nine of the Thomist under the title, Ways to Know God. It was the only article Edith ever submitted for publication in an English language journal. Though she submitted it in the fall of 1941, she did not live to see it published. But to back up a moment, in September 1932, we find Edith at a conference of the Thomistic Society in Uvici, France, outside of Paris, along with Jacques Maritain, Alexander Coré, Etienne Gilson, and Nicolas Berdyaev. These are all contemporary giants. She exchanged correspondence with the Maritains and was the recipient of an inscribed gift copy of the first French edition of Maritain's Degrees of Knowledge. Denied the possibility of a teaching position in Germany, she was free to pursue her contemplative vocation. She entered Mary Queen of Peace Carmel in Cologne in 1933. Modest, humble, mischievously witty, cheerful, friendly, or the words her co-religionists used to describe her. Encouraged by her religious superiors at Cologne, and later at Echt, she continued to write. Her Habilitationsschrift was rewritten to become Finite and Eternal Being. No German publisher would dare bring it out under her name. It was published posthumously in 1950. This was followed by the article Ways to Know God and the book Science of the Cross. The latter was a study of the life and theology, the poetry of 
St. John of the Cross. She was working on this book the day the Gestapo arrested her, August 2nd, 1942. She and her sister were two of the more than 700 non-Aryan Christians who were arrested in reprisal for a pastoral letter the Dutch bishops had promulgated in the churches on Sunday, July 26th, condemning the Nazi treatment of the Jews. Only eight days had elapsed between the promulgation of the letter and her arrest. Within another seven, she was dead. The death date normally given is August 9th, 1942. Interestingly, Hoytia, John Paul II, who wrote a dissertation in philosophy on Max Scheler, also wrote a dissertation in theology on John of the Cross. This sketch would be incomplete without some mention of Edith's habitual self-denial, her long hours at prayer before the Eucharist. The contemplative life is fraught with a multiplicity of psychological and spiritual dangers. In religious life, one can easily become carried into perilous regions of the soul through excessive or uncontrolled zeal. Stein was to maintain her sanity in spite of the mortification which she performed as a matter of course. Abbot Raphael Waltzer, in comments prepared for a volume to commemorate the 10th anniversary of her death, echoed Husserl's early assessment when he wrote, her interior life was so simple, free from the problems from my conversations with her, nothing remains in my memory but the picture of a soul of perfect clarity and maturity. The point I wish to stress about Edith Stein and the reason for introducing these remarks with a reference to Miguel de Unamuno is to suggest that Stein was intellectually prepared to grasp the faith which she was eventually accorded. It is true that not everyone who embraces the Catholic faith has to go through a series of philosophical steps in order to be open to the gift of faith. Most receive the faith by virtue of family inheritance, but even the born Catholic is admonished to examine in Socratic fashion the received in order that it might be rationally embraced. The convert, by definition, is one who has experienced a change of outlook. The type of philosophy one espouses implicitly or explicitly either opens one to faith or closes it as an intellectual option. Furthermore, the type of philosophy one espouses determines the kind of Christianity one embraces. Classical Greek and Roman intelligence gave rise to and will forever lead to the ecclesiastical institutions shaped which, by the fathers and by the doctors of the early medieval church. As Stein clearly saw, if one starts with modern philosophical nominalism or epistemology, one will not end up in the belief system which shaped Aquinas and which he subsequently developed. If Stein had not found her way to the objective phenomenological movement of Husserl, her intellectual and spiritual biography would have been quite different, I am sure. If Husserl had not been exposed to the Aristotelian and Thomism of Brentano and Bolzano, he too might have philosophized differently. Conversely, though faith provides one with a basic outlook, if that faith is not accountable to a logically prior philosophical order, it may lose its intellectual integrity and dissolve into an unanchored fideism or biblical fundamentalism. I began with Unamuno, and if one returns to the book which gained for him worldwide attention, translated into English as The Tragic Sense of Life, one finds an author solely concerned with his own life a life full of contradictions, torn between the truth thought and the truth felt. His reason can rise no higher than skepticism, his faith appears anti-rational and therefore incommunicable. 
Contrast Unamuno with the detachment and self-ignorance of Edith Stein. Even when writing of her own interpersonal experience, she employs the impersonal one. Her philosophical realism gives her work a being-centered objectivity. Nature manifested as phenomena controls her thought and dictates her action. When interpreting her contemplative experience as a phenomenologist, she distinguishes between the phenomena of accepting the doctrines of the church by faith and the phenomena of mediating or meditating on them in discursive prayer. Stein could never say, as did Unamuno, quoting Unamuno now, are ethical and philosophical doctrines in general, or usually merely the justification a posteriori of our conduct, of our actions. Our doctrines are usually the means we seek in order to explain and justify to others and to ourselves our own modes of action. If Unamuno were to be taken seriously, one would have to say that philosophy is mere rhetoric. Clearly, no one in the being-centered tradition of Aristotle and Thomas that Edith embraced would look upon philosophy as the rationalization of one's behavior. Stein's search for truth, her discovery of Catholicism and subsequent life, or the inverse of the subjectivism and pessimism of Unamuno and his mentors, Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. Clearly, one's philosophy does make a difference. What I've attempted to show here is, quite apart from the rather abstract treatment of religion that has been a characteristic of the seven lectures that preceded this one, is what philosophy means in the life of an individual, how that can either lead one to faith or close it down as an option. I think in Edith, we have someone who was intelligent, who was dissatisfied with the condition of the dominant thought patterns of her time, who was seeking something out, who found it first in philosophy and then through a philosophy which opened her to the faith, the faith itself. And what she made of the faith was determined by the intellectuality, the philosophy she brought to the faith. When she philosophizes, she is somewhere between Thomas and Husserl always, and her contribution as a result of that is absolutely unique. I might add that Edith Stein has been designated blessed because of her exemplary life by the Holy See. Permit me now a few concluding remarks. If you followed these lectures, you may have other conclusions, but these are conclusions that I personally have reached and perhaps you have reached with me. The goal of this course has been the achievement of an understanding of religion in the light of creed, right, symbols, moral directives, and its role in society. The philosophy of religion, as we saw, draws upon many disciplines. We have drawn principally upon history. We've also drawn upon the writings of some of the eminent commentators on religion through the ages. None of the disciplines by which we study religion, be they philosophy, anthropology, sociology, psychology, contain value judgments about it. The approach taken in this course, however, differs a bit from typical Anglo-Saxon methodology. We have not restricted ourselves just to the religious language. We didn't begin with language. We began with practice, with social structures, and the like. We have found that, in a certain sense, religion is natural. But then, religion is not natural in the sense that man is unavoidably religious by nature. Religion is undoubtedly conveyed through a culture. It is based primarily on how that culture perceives reality. Given a recognition of dependence on God, then religion may follow. Religion is not to be regarded 
simply as an emotional construct. If I place God in his heaven, all is right with the world, or Jesus loves me, it's not that sort of thing. It employs the emotions in drawing the mind to God through various art forms and frequently satisfies in that way the emotional side of man. To acknowledge God's providence, of course, may on certain occasions be a source of comfort. To believe that one will enjoy eternal life with God can carry one through crises. But to make emotional satisfaction the primary factor or to reduce religion to an emotive or aesthetic impulse is to rob it of its intrinsic intelligibility. Kant and Hegel insist on a rational footing. We didn't get to Schleiermacher, but we found that uh, Hume does not place it on a rational foundation. If religion were merely the satisfaction of an emotional side, then there would be no need for its practice for the great majority. Some may feel the need for poetry, others not. Similarly with religion, some could feel the need for it, others not. But that's not how we regard religion. All are obliged to worship. It should be acknowledged that true religion can be rather primitive and simple, and it can be rather sophisticated. The same basic set of beliefs can support both a kind of primitive response and a rather sophisticated response. The development of religious doctrine, particularly in the case of Judaism and Christianity, is a rather complex undertaking. And to explore that development requires considerable learning. It requires training in, in languages, philosophy, philology, and to some extent in the social disciplines. The conclusion of the natural and social sciences can indeed make positive contributions to theology, but sometimes they can come as real shockers with their conclusions. And if one is not knowledgeable or does not have training in them, one can indeed end up in a rather confused state. Basic truths about man were known in antiquity. We didn't have to wait on the 19th or 20th century to know about human nature. So in spite of the value of the social sciences, there's always a value in going back and looking at what the ancients had to say about a topic. If it bears on human nature and action, the ancients, no less intelligent than we, have much to teach us across the ages. Philosophy with a theory about God and a theory about symbol can provide as it were, a rational preamble for faith. One cannot take at face value the claim that there is no evidence for the existence of God. William James once made that remark, since Kant, no one believes that the existence of God can be demonstrated. One must examine the arguments, and to do that requires some learning. Kant does not refute Aquinas, and in spite of assertions to that effect, assertions by people like William James, another would be Paul Tillich. The arguments are there to be examined. They still have the force, but they are metaphysical arguments which require a certain type of learning. Many do not look upon religion as requiring a rational preamble. We, we see that with Kant, certainly. Kant's attacks on arguments for the existence of God would leave them undisturbed. In fact, they may welcome it. But we may note, and perhaps we didn't develop that as fully as we should have in an earlier lecture, Kant does not deprive religion of its reasonableness. In his own way, he establishes a rational basis for believing. Well, does religion provide us with reliable knowledge about nature, man, and God? Some will not allow knowledge to be predicated religious beliefs. Knowledge, it is said, comes only from science and science is identified with the use of mathematical or quantitative methods. The Christian mind, which affirms that God is, that God is the end of man, that God is triune in person, that God became incarnate, and as incarnate taught certain truths and offered a code of life, would certainly claim that that information is knowledge, basic information, important knowledge.
The Christian would claim that such is more important knowledge than any other knowledge that one can possess. It's the reliability of that knowledge that is at stake. Does knowledge have to be empirically confirmable to be knowledge? For example, if Christ is God, then there is no problem in certifying revelation as knowledge, but it's his status which is at stake. It is true to say that some knowledge and its credibility rests upon the acceptance of Christ as God. But can Christ be God? That answer depends upon your metaphysics. If your metaphysics doesn't permit such, then religious knowledge, from that point of view, is either false or cannot be taken at face value. It's interesting to note that those who deny a rational preamble to faith frequently, in the end, contract the claims made for religion. They usually end in making religion purely subjective, reducing it to poetry. If one does not give religion the benefit of its claim to be genuine knowledge, one can treat it, nevertheless, respectfully as an art form. Some do, some don't. Religion as an art form thus becomes know-how, a kind of technique, knowing how to pay homage to the divine. Now, the divine may be a fiction from certain points of view, but there is a certain advantage to treating religion in this way. Even the secular interpreter of religion can point things to the religious mind that are interesting and perhaps valuable to him. Whatever else religion is, it is an art form. We build temples. We create rites and rituals. We go to great lengths to produce icons. And quite apart from the temple itself, the themes which are derived from the Bible have inspired some of the greatest painting and sculptor that the West has known. Some religions may be considered fine art indeed. In others, the barbarians seem to be in charge. I won't comment on the mindlessness which seems to have invaded even mainline churches, including my own, in various liturgical movements. What about the social role of religion. With its insights, with its motivation and organization, churches frequently have to assume the role of secular educator as well as sacral educator. Churches frequently are efficient dispensers of welfare. They conduct orphanages, hospitals, nursing homes, farming cooperatives, and usually do this with a minimum of bureaucratic interference. Those roles are often forced upon the church. There is no intrinsic reason this should be so if the object of religion is worship. It's interesting, we can find in St. Augustine and St. Jerome, the notion that charity can either be mandated by the church or by the state. It has to come from an individual's interior propensity. A church, however, must teach. It must have some intellectual establishment if it is to succeed. Hume, Kant, and Hegel must be considered as members of an important intellectual class with influence that has been exercised, in the case of some, through the centuries. Religion must generate intellectuals of similar quality or similar stature. It must do that in part in the interest of self-understanding, but in part in the interest of meeting attacks, or if not full-scale attacks, then subtle denigrations of its reliability. What should be the relation of church and state? We haven't spoken about that but there are implications to be drawn from what we've said heretofore. If religion is an integral part of the life of the people, 
then the state has an obligation to see that man is properly instructed in religious matters. That sounds very strong given our traditions of separation in this country. But if the state takes on the burden of education, it also takes on the burden of religious instruction. The American so-called separation of church and state is rather artificial. Within reason, the state in its own self-interest should foster the development of religion without favoring one religion over another. The state is incompetent to decide which among the alternative religions is the superior one, though the state may monitor religion as a social institution and exercise certain controls. In concluding, I have to admit that religion can be good or bad. If the community wants it to be good, then like any other endeavor, it has to foster it. Religious education is obviously vital both to religion itself and to the state. There is no intrinsic reason why these schools in our own country should be secular today any more than there was any intrinsic reason that they should have been Protestant 75 years ago. The majority should not impose its ideology, but the minority should not impose it either. If the examination of religion, as in the examination of any human activity and institution, the role of philosophy is to put the viewer in a position to make judgments and to form a perspective that transcends periods and cultural environments. To understand religion is to know something of its history in both the East and the West. To understand religion is to grasp both its structure and its function within society. With these reflections, I close these eight lectures on the logic of religion. Again, I am Jude Doherty, Dean of the School of Philosophy at Catholic University. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.